Uh, good morning, Living Word Bible Church. It's nice to see you of sorts this morning on Sunday the 17th of May. I hope you're well, uh, emotionally, physically and spiritually. Um, we're going pretty well. Uh, the Jackson Five, myself, Adele, Stella, Sebastian and Fletcher. And uh, as usual, I bring greetings uh, from City Light Church, North Adelaide, our eldership um, and its members. Uh, yeah, warm regards to you and we really do hope you're going well. Um, We are in a little section of the Gospel of Mark today. Uh, Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark, is one of four foundational documents of the Christian faith. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John have always been considered as foundational. They've always been seen like that. That's why they're the first four books of the New Testament. And it's why, from at least as early as the second century, Christians have stood when they've gathered together in church they've stood for the reading of the gospel i wonder if you stood while mark chapter 7 was read today you didn't have to and if you didn't that's fine standing for the gospel reading has been done um since like in many traditions and denominations like since the second century right up until like yesterday or at least really recent times um only recently have churches kind of stopped doing that it gives you a sense that Christians have always viewed these documents, these texts, as foundational texts for the Christian faith. You stood when it was read, not because it was any more God's holy word than other parts of the Bible, but that it was viewed as you stood because this is the very foundation upon which we stand as Christians. And I reckon this is a a great time, actually, these uncertain times, to check whether or not we're standing on solid foundations or maybe we're drifting to sort of maybe some sinking sand. Good time to review whether or not we're developing programs and traditions on the foundations or maybe a little bit away from the foundations. Because foundations are there to be built on and built over. Um, If you start building away from the foundations, at least so the engineers tell me, it can get a little bit precarious. If we start building away from the foundations, it can like theologically get a little bit precarious as well. I'm sure you're really aware that uh, throughout church history, there have been thousands and thousands of developments that were built on and built over the foundations. But over time, the connections for some of those developments and traditions can drift from the foundations. Uh, So having a church building, Um, You know, that was a development in the history of the Christian faith. Um, For the first century followers of Jesus, they didn't have church buildings. But in the second and third century, some Christians went, hey, wouldn't it be nice to have a church building? Um, That wasn't a command from the gospel, but it was built on the foundation of the gospel. Christians went, hey, wouldn't it be great to have a safe place together? Wouldn't it be great to have a place where we can meet together and learn from each other? And wouldn't it be cool to have like a facility, a building, which was like a community hub, all really good things that flow from the gospel. But of course, over time, um, people, Christians, can become sort of obsessed about church buildings, you know, the new ones or even the old ones, and we can drift from the gospel and its foundations. Or think about robes, right? Not a big deal for us at City Light Church, North Adelaide, not for you at Living Word Bible Church. But Clerical robes, you know, those sort of fancy things that um, priests and ministers used to wear, they started out, right, from a good, healthy gospel foundation. 
where the minister really just wanted to be identified with the peasants or the regular members of the church, right? So the minister didn't want to be distinguished from everyone else. A really lovely idea, totally connected to the gospel, right? That in Jesus, we're all one. Um, There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, Scythian, barbarian, male, female. We're all one in Christ. However, over time, in some traditions, robes can come to represent sort of a separateness or an otherness or even a power. And uh, obviously that's become separated from the foundations. Or I think for a minute about small groups. You have small groups at Living Word Bible Church. They are, small groups, are probably the most recent widespread tradition of the Christian faith. They are actually a very recent addition and they arise from largely good foundations or a desire for God's people to be together outside of the regular Sunday gatherings, to learn together, to live with each other, to carry each other's burdens, to discuss and learn and sit under the word of God together. All of that sort of good stuff, do hospitality. But even small groups can be susceptible to drifting from the foundations to the point where, you know, being in a small group in a local church can be like a distinguishing mark of whether you're kind of a hardcore member or someone on the fringe. Um, the people in the small groups, well, they're the committed ones, the ones who are yet to be in small groups. We're the ones we have to do a bit of work with, you know, they're not quite as solid in their understanding. You can see how that can be a defiance of the foundation. Why am I going on about all this? Well, the point is, right, we can develop programs and traditions and ways of doing things in churches that are either built on the foundations or drift away from the foundations. Why am I talking about this? Well, Mark chapter 7, which I hope you have in front of you now, verses 1 to 30, shows us that this group of people called the Pharisees developed traditions, ways of doing things to the point of disconnection from the foundations. Jesus in verse 8 will go as far to say to them, quote, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. That's a pretty striking thing to say. See, Mark chapter 7 simultaneously shows us where Jesus thought the Judaism of his day had drifted from the foundations and also tells us what Jesus thinks the foundations really ought to be. It's a really important text. So this text just really tells us two things, Um, drifting from foundations and a little bit about how Christianity and Judaism kind of parted ways. And also, secondly, the way to build on better foundations and what those foundations are. So first, let's think about um, drifting from foundations. Um, Right up front, right, Christianity is actually quite Jewish. Um, in Mark chapter 1, we are introduced to Jesus who, who comes onto the scene and we're introduced to Jesus who fulfills all of the hopes and dreams and expectations of the, the Old Testament. But a big question that you know, comes up there and a big question that I'm often asked is, um, Simon, how come Judaism and Christianity are so far apart today? How come so many Jews reject Christianity and reject Jesus? Actually, you know, Mark chapter 7 goes a little way to help us sort of understand and answer the question. And the answer is this, right? The Pharisees built Judaism away from the foundations as Jesus saw them. The Pharisees built Judaism away from the foundations as Jesus saw them. 
Now, to get a bit more meat onto this, we need to do a little bit of history. And for here, for this moment, I'm very thankful for the Centre of Public Christianity um, for their help in sort of helping me dig around in this part of history. I'm, you know, I'm a learner, I'm a grower, I don't know all this stuff. But um, I'm thankful. So let's do a bit of history together. So when Jesus came onto the scene, uh, came as God incarnate into the world, into our world in the first century, there were five types of Judaism that were kind of operating at the time. The first group was the Pharisees. Now, we meet them in verse 1. We meet them a lot, actually, in the Gospels. Verse 1, these guys called the Pharisees. Now, Pharisee pretty much means purity. So these guys were a purity movement. And they believed that you could be pure um, wherever you were, as long as you adhered to the traditions of the elders. We hear that phrase in chapter 7. So as long as you, whether you're in Jerusalem, in the temple, or 50 kilometers north, where, or south, or east, or west, wherever you were, as long as you did the traditions of the elders, you were pure. That was their big thing. So the first group was the Pharisees. The second group were the Sadducees. Now, these guys were the temple elite. Um, They ran the temple. They loved the temple. Um, They didn't love the traditions of the elders of the Pharisees. They kind of rejected them. They basically believed that as long as they kept the rituals within the temple going that were kind of handed to Moses and handed down, as long as they did that, God would bless Israel. God would bless Israel. That was their big thing. So they're the temple elite. The third group, they were the Essenes. They kind of rejected both the Pharisees, the the traditions of the elders. They rejected the abuse of the temple that they saw in terms of the Sadducees. And they went, we're out of here. So they left and went to a place called Qumran, beside the Dead Sea. It's from the Essenes that we get the Dead Sea Scrolls. They believed that they were just going to hang out there. They were the the hardcore kind of fundamentalist Jews. They believed we're just going to camp over here. When the Sadducees and the Pharisees are kind of, they're gone, we're going to back into Jerusalem and we're going to sort of be truly Jewish back in Jerusalem one day. That was their hope. So you've got Pharisees, you've got Sadducees, you've got the Essenes. The fourth group are the Zealots. Uh, The Zealots were this group of Jews in the first century who um, believed, they, they sort of held to the traditions of the elders of the Pharisees. They were like, yep, we're all for that. But they also believed that um, God had given God his people, and they believed, as the zealots, a, a political sort of agenda, that their job was to kind of take Jerusalem back by force from the Romans. And so, you know, that was their kind of agenda. So believe what the Pharisees believed, purity stuff, but also said, we're going to get in there with weapons and zeal and militancy and take back Jerusalem by force. The fifth group um, are what some people call the baptizers. Uh, This was a group of Jews who basically had come to the realization that it was time to go back to the basics as God's people. Um, God's people, Israel, had largely kind of um, walked away from God. It was time for them to come back to God uh, to repent of their sins, recommit their lives to, to God um, by kind of stepping back into and going through the Jordan, being baptized in the Jordan, starting afresh with God. And and two big names in the baptizing movement were John the Baptist, who we meet in Mark chapter 1, and the second person, you've guessed it, it's Jesus of Nazareth. Um, repent, believe in God, come back to God and start afresh. That was their kind of... Thing. So these five groups. Now, here's the point. Here's the point of all that sort of five-group history. Um, any one of those five groups in the, in the first century AD, probably apart, probably excluding the Essenes because they're off somewhere else, 
any one of those groups could have been kind of mainstream Judaism in the first century AD. Um, so while the temple stood in Jerusalem, right, uh, the Sadducees could have been the mainstream sort of leaders of Judaism. Um, the Zealots, right, they had some wonderful victories, if you want to call it that, over the Romans. Um, AD 66 come, came charging in, smashed the, the Romans. And so people thought, wow, maybe they're the chosen you know, ones of Israel. But then in 70 AD, uh, the Romans turned up in Jerusalem and absolutely raised Jerusalem to the ground. They raised the temple to the ground, so the temple's gone. And so 70 AD, basically the Sadducees are gone. There's no temple. There's nothing for them to do. And the Zealots, right, they got kind of crushed in all of this, and so they're off the page. So you get to the, you know, towards the end of the first century, and you've only really got two groups of Jews left. You've got the Pharisees and you've got the baptizers. By the end of the first century, by after 70 AD, Judaism looks really different. We've kind of gone from five to two. If you wind forward a little bit to 200 AD, the Pharisees had, had multiplied the laws, the traditions of the elders to such a degree that they'd produced a new holy book called the Mishnah, which contained hundreds of laws and traditions of the elders. Wind forward to the 5th, 6th and 7th centuries, the, the laws had become so multiplied now that they produced another document called the Talmud, which is actually quite legitimately like hundreds of times longer than the New Testament and contains all the refinements and developments and additions of more and more and more laws of the Pharisaic tradition. Now, why is all this important? Well, you see, the Pharisees had had developed Judaism to a point that excluded the baptizing movement that we call Christianity, that in the first century looked a whole lot like Judaism. So the baptizers, right, they're proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. We do that. They were converting and out there sharing the good news that, that the Messiah had come and that through faith and repentance in him, you could have life forever. So they were converting and sharing the gospel and, and that with, with Gentiles. We do that. But the Pharisees, towards the end of the first century and following, excluded Christians and declared them minim, heretics. So in a weird kind of way, right, Christianity is an earlier form of Judaism than is the Judaism of the Mishnah and the Talmud. All forms of Judaism today really comes from the Pharisees, so the Orthodox, uh, Conservative and Reformed denominations, the big three denominations of Judaism today, all come from this later form of Judaism. So in Jesus' day, Mark chapter 7, the, the Pharisees were just one option. But they were an option that Jesus was gravely concerned about, that they were in danger of developing away from the foundations of God's word and God's will. And he criticised them. We're finally going to get to Mark's gospel now, chapter 7. They, Jesus criticised them in Mark chapter 7, verses 5 and 6, for all these rules about hand-washing. Hand-washing. Hand-washing is a big theme right now in our culture. Um, very big for the Pharisees back then. Have a look, verse 5. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. Isaiah is writing about 800 years before Jesus comes. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human 
rules. Now, you read that today. I read that today, and I'm like, hey, Jesus, hand washing is quite critical, brother. Like, if we don't wash our hands, COVID-19 is going to spread like wildfire across our city and our nation and our world. So, like, what are you talking about? Well, clearly, Jesus isn't talking about physical hand washing for hygienic purposes. He's talking about hand washing for a different purpose. What's all this about? Well, we know from the Mishnah um, about hand washing for the Pharisees. There's an 11 page document in the Mishnah called Yadayim, hands. And in Yad chapter 3, Yadayim 2 3, we get an idea of just how strict the approach to hand washing the Pharisees had. Let me read a little bit to you. Now, listen to this. You don't have to write it down, by the way. The hands are susceptible, it says, to uncleanness and are rendered clean up to the wrist. How so? If one pours the first water of two washings up to the wrist and the second beyond the wrist as it went down back down to the hand, it is clean. If he poured out the first and second pouring of water beyond the wrist and it went back down to the hand, it is unclean. If he poured out the first water onto one hand and was reminded and poured out the second water onto both hands, they are unclean. If he poured out the first water onto both hands and was reminded and poured out the second water onto one hand, his hand that has been washed twice is unclean. If he poured out water onto one hand and rubbed it onto the other hand, it is, you know what the word is, unclean. Eleven pages about the right way to wash your hands. And Orthodox Jews today adhere to Yadayim strictly. What is my point? Jesus criticized the Pharisees for this stuff. He said it's building away from the traditions. You're missing the point. Jesus also had a go at them about, I didn't know, catch it in verse 11, this thing called Korban, um, chapter 7, verses 9 to 13. Read it with me. Jesus continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your traditions. For Moses said, Honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might be used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Now, what is all this about, this korban thing, verse 11? Well, let's say you have a piece of land... um, And that piece of land, you know, you own that, it's yours, but you don't want your parents who are poor and in need to benefit from that by getting some grain or some flour or some barley or whatever off that land. So you go, that's my land, I don't want my parents, my parents to benefit from that. What you do is declare that parcel of land, Korban, devoted to God, and that made it, right, ritually impossible for your parents to benefit from that land. And according to the traditions of the elders, the Pharisees, by doing that, you weren't breaking the law. I mean, you were being desperately unloving, but you weren't breaking the law. Wonderful. And Mark chapter 7 verse 13 records this from Jesus. And you, talking to the Pharisees, you do many things like that. And he's not exaggerating. You you just have to look at the Mishnah. There are... Hundreds of laws like this that seem to miss the spirit of the law but give people permission to be less than, well, godlike. 
How did Christianity and Judaism part ways? We'll see the Pharisees redeveloped and redefined Judaism in a way that the Lord Jesus Christ totally condemned. They drifted from the foundations. Love for God being at the centre and overflowing from that love, your neighbour, had sort of vanished. And Jesus said, you've drifted from the foundations. So it was inevitable, right, that over time, Jesus' vision of what it meant to be the people of God, the people of Israel, would be very different to that of a Jew. And so that turns us to the, the second point today, a better vision, a better foundation. See, Jesus doesn't leave us just with this kind of stinging critique of the Pharisees in the first century. He actually lays before us a wonderful foundation. He presents to us a a better vision of what it means to to be the people of God. Um, He says to the Pharisees, you guys, you're on shaky ground. You're building on dodgy foundations. Jesus lays here for us a much better foundation. Mark chapter 7 gives us two stunning insights into the foundations of Jesus, his vision of what it means to be the people of God, both back in the first century and and today in the 21st century. The two foundations are really simple, a pure heart and a generous spirit, or in a different way, moral conviction and social compassion. Let's see how this plays out in the text. Um, Firstly, a pure heart or moral conviction. Um, it's hard to see, I think, in Mark chapter 7, reading it today, the kind of incredible revolution that Jesus puts before us. Um, Western culture, we're, we're so shaped actually now by Mark chapter 7 that it's sort of, you just don't get the, the impact perhaps. Um, you know, Jesus in this passage sort of relegates kind of external ritual and appearance and sort of elevates internal sort of heart attitude. It's a revolution in thinking. You see, what happened was in the first century, for example, um, Greek and Roman religions were, were all about the external. All that mattered was the externals, going through rituals. Um, didn't It never mattered in Greek and Roman religion how you felt, what you felt inside. Um, you know, it didn't matter how you felt about God. It didn't matter how you felt about the people around you. It just mattered that you kind of did the right thing, looked the right way. Greeks and Romans never talked about the heart, purity of heart. What's that? It's just all about honour and going through the right thing, looking the right way. You know, in some parts of Judaism, right, it drifted in this particular way as well, became all about externals. So that's why, you know, hand washing was so important. This external kind of cleansing of your hands, that'll make you clean. Um, Even if you were a seething mass of evil and hatred toward God or toward... um, your mother or father or siblings or your neighbour, your employee, whatever. So as long as everything on the outside was okay, you could be a seething mass of hatred on the inside. Didn't really matter. Or, for example, the religious laws of the day permitted uh, God's people, some of God's people, to literally avoid stopping and helping a beaten, wounded, dying Samaritan or Gentile person outside of Judaism. You could. The law said you don't have to help them because, you know, if you do help them, that'll mean you'll become... Unclean. You see, the external was really important, really all that mattered. That's the background, right, to help us see just how stunning Jesus' comment in verse 18 and following is, even though it seems like common sense to us all today. Have a look with me, Mark chapter 7, verse 18 and following. He says, Are you so dull? Jesus asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from outside can defile them? 
for it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. And then parenthetically, Mark adds, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. We haven't got time to unpack each one of those words, but let me just say this. Jesus is saying that externals don't count for anything if your heart is a seething mass of evil. And this was a revolution, a revolution in its day, and I think it still has a revolutionary tinge to it today. But it's a revolution, right, that is in many ways hard to police. It's easy to police the hand-washing thing. You've come in contact with something that's unclean, wash your hands. You can police that. You've come in contact with something that's unclean. You're not washing your hands. I can police that. But the heart, really hard to police because it's inside. It's sort of unseen. Jesus had this revolutionary approach. Your heart can be a seething mass of evil and external stuff doesn't matter. You know, we can all look like committed followers of Jesus, committed Christians on the outside, whilst being a seething mass of evil and hatred and violence and vengeance towards God, towards our neighbours, towards our family. And no one will even know. That's the scary thing. Jesus says, forget the externals. They count for nothing if you have an impure heart. Church attendance, reading your Bible every day, singing loudly, celebrating the Lord's Supper, making coffee for people at church. That's a bit of a distant memory. You know, being a member of a small group, observing Lent in the lead up to Easter, observing Advent in the lead up to Christmas. None of it matters if our hearts entertain verse 21, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice. Deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. This was foundational to the vision of Jesus for the people of God. A moral conviction, a pure heart. Now, some purity rules of the Pharisees concerned human beings as well. Um, So it wasn't just purity rules in relationship to food or uh, to your own hands, to pots and pans and whisks and egg flips and bowls and things like that. Um, people, in the view of the Pharisees, could be unclean as well. And your contact with unclean people could make you unclean. And actually, the Pharisees graded human beings, different human beings, on what they considered to be varying degrees of cleanness or uncleanness. Now, why am I telling you this? Because I think this explains the shift we see in Mark chapter 7 from Jesus um, chatting to and challenging the Pharisees about their purity rules, hand washing and foods, to the story of Jesus Christ going to a Gentile woman, a woman who would have been considered unclean by pretty much everyone. But first, let me quote to you from the Mishnah about the Pharisaic grading of human beings. Effectively, this is in answer to the question of who could you have round for dinner and what are the impacts of that? Um, quote, concerning tax collectors who enter your house. The house is unclean, like the whole thing. Concerning thieves who enter your house, only the place trodden by the feet of the thieves is unclean. I mean, did you get that, right? Tax collectors 
are dirtier, more rotten scoundrels than thieves are in the Mishnah and according to the Pharisaic tradition of the elders. Oh, and by the way, if a thief comes into your house with a Gentile, with a non-Jewish person, well, then everything is unclean. My point here is, right, Pharisaic purity rules were all about excluding people. Impurity was contagious. So you avoid as, as, avoided as much as possible contact with, you know, impure people. Here's the thing. Jesus rejected it entirely. He taught that purity of heart, love for God, love for neighbor, would express itself in a generosity of spirit to the impure. It would lead to social compassion. This is the second foundation. That's what we learn in this wonderful story, Mark chapter 7, verse 24 to the end, to 30. Jesus' interaction with a, a Gentile woman who has a daughter with an impure spirit. Now, I wonder when that little section of this passage was read out before, I wonder if you went, hang on, that doesn't sound like the Jesus that I've come to know and love. Jesus sounds a little bit, I don't know, harsh, a bit mean. Where's lovely, meek and mild, gentle and lowly Jesus kind of? gone. This woman comes to Jesus in utterly desperate circumstances. Verse 26, she begs him to help her daughter. And Jesus, as good as equivocates, and as good as calls her a dog, doesn't he? In verse 27. But you know what? That misses the point of this beautiful story. Um, This cannot be uh, an anti-woman story. This cannot be an anti-Gentile story. Um, For a bunch of reasons, right? Firstly, comparing a woman to a dog in a parable form like this has none of the negative connotations that we would attach to that today by calling somebody, whether it's a man or a woman, a dog. Um, It's nothing to do with that. We've got to read this um, as an ancient, not as a modern. More to the point, in Mark chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus says that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation is for all people everywhere. So this is in no way a a particularly nasty kind of story or it's a Jesus against the world kind of story. What we see happening here is that Mark has linked this scene of an impure woman with the debate with the Pharisees about impure hands and impure food. Do you see verse 24, that transition sentence? I I sometimes get really annoyed with the NIV or ESV or whatever translation you have or the little subheadings they put in because it gets in the way. Verse 24 is this transition sentence between the previous story about impure hands and food and this new story we're about to encounter. Verse 24 literally says this, From there he got up and went to Tyre. That's a narrative link. To say that this story relates to the story you've just heard. It is a deliberate move on Jesus' part. Jesus leaves the Pharisees. He leaves their obsessions and drifting from foundation obsession about impurity. And he goes to a famously impure region, Tyre and Sidon. And he finds there a famously impure woman. This is not accidental. Do you notice in verse 6 how Mark labours the woman's pagan status? Do you see what he says? Remember, she lives in Tyre. If that's not bad enough, she's Greek. No offence to Greek listeners or watchers today. Love you, totally, but she's Greek. And she's indigenous to this place called Syria, Phoenicia. I mean, she is a complete and utter pagan. She is 
out kind of thing. Oh, and her daughter, right? She has an impure spirit and she's caring for her daughter with an impure spirit, which she means she is like totally and utterly, completely impure. In every imaginable way, Mark is setting up this story as Jesus has left an impurity debate to go to the most impure scenario possible. The whole thing is deliberate and wonderful. Mark sets up her impure credentials because in the end, this story functions a bit like the first part of the narrative. In verse 19, Jesus declares all foods clean. In this scene, Jesus will declare this woman clean. That's what's happening here. So what about the little parable? What about the the, the bread and the giving it to the dogs? What about verse 27? Well, I think it's quite simple. Jesus says that sort of provocative statement in order to provoke the response that he gets. I don't think Jesus is playing games with this woman. I don't think he he says this kind of striking sort of scenario with a sort of twinkle in his eye as some people kind of think it is. He's actually holding up to this woman the first century Jewish perspective on Gentiles and asking her to comment. It's like Jesus is saying, hey, woman, you know that we Jews are famous for withholding bread, the bread of God, from others. You know that we're famous for keeping the bread of God to ourselves. What do you say to that? He's trying to evoke the very response that he gets in verse 28, where she beautifully says, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. That's the answer he wanted. Humble faith, recognizing that she is a Gentile. She's not, you know, heir to the promises of God, but that in Jesus she is able to find hope and access. You see, this humble, unnamed woman demonstrates remarkable spiritual discernment. She is actually the first character in the Gospel of Mark to comprehend the nature and the size and the scope of God's salvation plan. A salvation that begins first with the Jews, but then is expanded and opened up to everyone everywhere. And Jesus blesses her, heals her daughter, and the scenario is resolved. And notice it's the only story that Mark records of Jesus' visit to Tyre. Verse 31, Jesus is off again somewhere else. You see, it's as if Mark tells us that this is a mission trip of Jesus with one explicit purpose, to find the most unclean thing he can find and extend his extraordinary grace in that place. Just a brief comment on this remarkable woman. Um, She is remarkable. Um, I find her inspiring. Um, She is wonderful. One commentator says, I quote, the woman demonstrates humility. Instead of being offended or put off by Jesus' initial rebuff, she humbly accepts the epithet dog but then turns it to her own advantage. She acknowledges that she is undeserving, with no rightful place at the table, but then falls at Jesus' feet literally and asks for mercy. This is our only appropriate approach to God as humble sinners in need of grace. We bring nothing to the table except our emptiness and the promise of a loving and merciful God. End quote. This woman is a model disciple of Jesus. We would do well to follow her example. She 
models faith. She models humility. She's willing to be the last instead of the first. She is aware that sin matters. But she's also aware of the compassionate nature of God and the inclusive beauty and nature of the gospel. These are things God is looking for in his people. Humble faith. Trust in the grace of God in desperate circumstances. Moral conviction and social compassion. In these two scenes in Mark chapter 7, we see these two critical foundations of Jesus' vision for his people, what it means to be the people of God, a demand for the pure, a pure heart, an emphasis on a generous spirit. Moral conviction accompanied by generous social compassion. And I think I've said this before. I think I've said this before at Living Word Bible Church. Throughout history, the church has tended, we've tended to overemphasize or emphasize one over the other. So there's been periods in church history where we've uh, been all about moral conviction, all about purity, um, and forget how easily it was for Jesus to go and hang out with and eat and dine with sinners. You know, the compassion muscle atrophies and, the, you know, the, the moral conviction muscle kind of grows. I think they're, at, you know, like Roger Federer, the famous tennis player, um, who apparently, you know, he plays with his, he serves and, and hits with his right hand. So he's got this really strong right arm, but this really wasted away left arm. Um, you know, it's a bit like us. We can waste away with our, our compassion and yet grow this strong moral conviction. That's been a feature, a characteristic of churches in the past. But there are other periods in history, and I wonder if it's a period we're in today where we are a bit like, we're a bit the opposite, actually. We, we're a church that is wonderfully compassionate, incredibly kind, and, and yet we've lost our moral conviction. There's no insistence on purity of heart. And, and wider society doesn't help us at all in this place. Um, wider society really encourages this kind of splitting off or bifurcation, you know, of separating moral com- conviction from social compassion. Um, Adelaide society, our Western culture, um, doesn't understand how it's possible to um, profoundly disagree with someone on a moral issue whilst at the same time deeply loving them. We've lost our memory of in our culture of how to do that, I wonder if we've done the same in our churches. Because whenever society hears, you know, moral conviction, what does it hear? It hears moralism. And um, it it thinks, you know, you can't be loving at the same time. So what our society does, right, it divides um, people into either um, the moralistic or humanitarian. And who wants to be moralistic? So we all rush to the humanitarian and abandon our moral convictions, drop a commitment to purity of heart. And I suppose there are some who go the other way. I don't know too many of those people, some who you know, don't want to associate with the lefty, hippie kind of humanitarians and so rush to be all moralistic. I don't think it's a huge problem necessarily, in the, in, at least in the places that I hang out, but it may be, maybe it is. My point is that neither on their own are sole true foundations of the church. Jesus had this amazing ability when he was on planet Earth to thunder in public against murder and adultery and sexual immorality, to thunder in public about hatred and racism and violence. 
And then that very evening, after railing and thundering against these things, go and hang out with and eat with the tax collectors and sinners. My prayer for Living Word Bible Church, my prayer for myself, is that as we wrestle with Mark chapter 7 and and as we build on these twin foundations, that we as a church, that we as individual Christians will be men and women, churches who hold together purity of heart, moral conviction, alongside generous spirit, social compassion, that they would never split off, but they would be held together in tension, never one without the other that we will be individuals, we will be churches, be a church that is serious about secret sin, that we will be aware of our dodgy hearts and we don't have to share all that's on our dodgy heart with every single person, but we will be aware of the dodginess of our hearts, that we are easily able to drift to all that external stuff while being a seething mass of evil on the inside. And yet we need to be men and women who take seriously our sin, bring that before the Lord, bring it together in confidence with a dear brother or sister. We'll be concerned about moral conviction. But at the same time, we'll we'll be radically compassionate, socially compassionate people. Be churches where there's no racism where there's no homophobia, where there's no Islamophobia, where there's no moral high ground, where we will, at the end of the day, be individuals, be churches committed to extending the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to everyone and everywhere. Let's pray. Lord God and gracious Heavenly Father, we, we ask, Lord, that you today, you would protect us from drifting from your word. Father, remember at the heart of your word is your son, the Lord Jesus. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on him. We recall that at the heart of your word is this call to love you with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and the overflow of that to love our neighbour as ourselves. Help us, Lord, to build our lives on the solid foundation of Jesus and the Bible. Protect us, Lord, uh, from establishing traditions, from establishing programs that are on sinking sand. Help us to build on and build over the twin foundations that we see today of moral conviction and generous social compassion. So Holy Spirit, search us. Holy Spirit, change us. And Lord, please grow us to be more like Jesus, for the glory of your name, our joy, and the good of those whom we live with and work with and do life with. And we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.